Do you think that people from all political parties share the same fundamental foundations? Do you think our sense of morality evolved with our brains? Are you a social psychologist with the middle name David? If you answer yes to all three, then you probably wrote today's book, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Haidt? And this is The Book Pile. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and as a kid from the 90s, I can't read the title of this book without hearing it like it's coming from a Ninja Turtle. (laughs) And I'm David Vance. The author is an atheist, so I assume the angel and devil on his book cover uh, evolved. (laughs) (laughs) All right, again, if you want to give us an early Christmas present, rate and review us. Uh, Julia Bear 87 says, I don't listen to podcasts that much, but I am a fan of the book pile. Both of the hosts work off each other really well for an entertaining experience. Dave makes me laugh quite often. Kellen is just okay, I guess. Oh no, what have you done? <laughs> but here's... <laughs> because I have this long history of taking compliments the wrong way, now when I get something that seems insulting, I honestly... <laughs> could just convince myself that that it's people trying to trigger me. (laughs) So I think I've like, I've eaten my way through to the other side. Wow. (laughs) What a weird growth story. (laughs) Make no mistake. It's still very unhealthy uh, because (laughs) now whenever I receive criticism in our comments, I'm just going to be like, they're just trying to tease me because they know I hate myself. (laughs) All right, if you want to see me live hating myself, I'm going to be in Wise Guys this week, downtown Salt Lake City, Utah, December 9th and 10th. The following week, I'll be in Dallas at the Dallas Comedy Club, December 16th and 17th. And then for New Year's Eve and the day before, that's a weird day to party, the Des Moines Funny Bone, December 30th and 31st. Go to kellenerskin.com for tickets. Finally, our next two books are The Namesake and A Christmas Carol. So I chose this book uh, because Dave and other people who I actually respect have been recommending it to me. And I think this book, it's a rare genre, nonfiction that you feel applies to everyone in the world but yourself. (laughs) I found the first few chapters to be the most compelling, where he talks about where morality comes from and how different people define it and how so few people have concrete answers other than it's just wrong because it's wrong. I also love the wrap-up chapter at the end about how we can have better conversations no matter what political party we're from, other than me because I'm not affiliated with any party, which means, you guessed it, no one likes me. <laughs> what did you think, Dave? So I love this book. I've, I've read it a couple times. I noticed it helps you see where you're hypocritical for like a week, and it helps you see where other people are hypocritical for years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and without further ado... Here are four lessons that we took from The Righteous Mind. All right. Lesson one. Maybe learning how to debate is a toxic skill. He doesn't say this word for word in the book, but the more that I read it, the more I realized that maybe high school debate teams are good for teaching kids how to source information, but terrible at showing them how to use it in a constructive conversation. Uh More troubling to me is that debates aren't concerned with seeking out truth. Right. <laughs> like, have you ever watched a presidential debate where one of the candidates was like, you know what? I think you're right. I never thought of it that way. 
<laughs> it would be seen as a huge weakness that they're actually open to a truth, <laughs> willing to change. I haven't, but I have seen a debate where two 80-year-old men threaten to beat each other up. <laughs> so, hate says, quote, people are vastly more concerned with looking right than being right. I also loved this quote. People invest their IQ on buttressing their own case rather than exploring the other side more fully and even-handedly. So reading the novel State of Fear significantly changed me and how I have conversations with people because it has this character who has like five peer-reviewed studies to back up everything he says. And if you flip to the end of the book, the bibliography is 22 pages long. Like Michael Crichton did his homework. Unlike other authors, like the average Harry Potter book, even J.K. Rowling only cites maybe three wizard books. (laughs) and one newspaper. So now in conversations, I only bring up facts if I can back them up. So no more starting sentences with, well, they say that, or I heard on the radio. That was unfortunately so much of my 20s. (laughs) What I like doing is I always say there's a rumor that, because now by definition, it's true. Also, I severely judge people who can't source their facts, so I am a changed person. Here's a fun example, Dave. Did you know that swallowing gum is totally fine? What? Right now, does anyone listening feel like arguing with me? Or if your kid's listening, did you tell them that that isn't true? I just want to know what (laughs) your source is. (laughs) Is it still your friends in middle school who told you that bubblegum sits in your stomach for seven years? (laughs) I just want to know, can you name this study? What's the article in the peer-reviewed medical journal that published that finding? Because I read 10 uh, from the Mayo Clinic (laughs) to the CDC, and I didn't just look for the ones that said it was fine, because that's the other problem. Sure. I couldn't find one that said it was dangerous. There have been massively rare exceptions if you're looking for them, like this one child who swallowed collectively a pound of gum and it constipated him. But at that point, I think it's probably unhealthy for a three-year-old to eat a pound of anything. <laughs> yeah. Right? That's that's four quarter pounders. And if I'm doing the math right, it's the parents that suck at that point. <laughs> this whole time. I've just assumed gum sat in my stomach for seven years, gradually accumulating all those spiders I swallow. (laughs) It just isn't true. Like everything from the gum that can be digested is digested and then it just passes through. (laughs) In fact, one of the the articles that I read acted like everyone reading it was so dumb because (laughs) it said the rest of the gum will just pass through the stool. And then it said in parentheses, pooping. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) It's about to look up stool in the dictionary. (laughs) How will it pass? It's made out of wood. (laughs) Wait, this sounds even worse. It's not just gum, but furniture in my body. (laughs) When you're looking for answers, especially online, I just think you should ask yourself, honestly, are you doing research or are you only seeking out experts who are trying to prove what you already want to be true? Yeah. Right. Eight says, quote, People search for reasons to convince themselves that they have made the right choice. Again, that is that is just what confirmation bias is. 
Um, speaking of which, I'm not saying I'm even 100% convinced of the gum thing. I'm just at a point where the overwhelming evidence makes sense to me, but I'm still willing to have a conversation with someone about it, especially if you're a throat doctor or a gum doctor. <laughs> and even in saying all this, I'm not strongly trying to persuade anyone to believe what I do. I just mean, how about let's both have done a good amount of unbiased research before having a conversation. And if not, let's talk about something else that totally doesn't matter, like the weather or all sports. I thought I'd end. <laughs> this on a point of commonality. But my overall takeaway is I haven't gotten preachy since probably our eighth episode, but I do plead with everyone listening. The next time you're going to have a conversation on a political issue, climate change, gun control, GMOs, maybe just ask yourself if you can back up every one of your statements or... Is it that you just want your take on it to be true? When you're discussing it with someone else, are you open to gathering more information and improving your opinion with more truth? Or are you staying on the low road and just can't wait for the other person to stop talking so you can tell them why they're wrong and that Ron Weasley isn't actually a huge jerk? I just want (laughs) every host on this podcast to be open-minded. I didn't say he wasn't a huge jerk. I said I still liked him. (laughs) I thought this book taught you not to attack other people's religious beliefs. (laughs) All right, lesson two. Feelings come first, reasons second. He talks about this really interesting experiment where they tell people these messed up stories, and then you have to decide, did the characters do something wrong? Which is basically why I watch HBO. And what they found was the people in the study say, yeah, they did something wrong, but then they can't explain why it's wrong. They just have a feeling. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to tell the stories and... Uh, By the way, if you're listening with a kid, maybe skip ahead two minutes or give them a tablet so they can find something worse online. (laughs) So here's one. This woman is a vegetarian, but she works in a hospital lab. And one night she's supposed to cremate someone. And she says, well, I don't want to waste this good meat, which as a vegetarian, just so everyone knows, we only vowed to not eat animals. (laughs) So she cuts off a piece of human flesh and takes it home and cooks it and eats it. Then they ask, is that wrong? And to be clear, this isn't a a true story, right? Oh, yeah. They're they're story problems. And what they found was people had strong feelings that these things were wrong, but then they couldn't find a reason. And then finally, people say, I just know it's wrong, but I can't explain why. And his argument is that's how morality works. We feel something is wrong, and then we come up with the reasons later. And I'd argue that applies to everything. Like, I think killing people is wrong, but I can't prove it to you scientifically. I just feel it. I will say also that I do think some of these things apply more to people who are looking for that exact uh, sort of scientific basis for right and wrong, which a lot of the early philosophers were looking for as well, sort of the, the logic behind things. Even on the religious side, I would argue that at some point you believe the things you believe because they feel right. I would argue if everyone found an extra chapter in their holy book that said, go out and kill and torture everyone you'd still be like, hold up. (laughs) (laughs) And to be fair, I mean, there are parts of Leviticus where it it kind of says that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, lesson three. If you have a theory, don't just try to prove it, try to disprove it. This is a quick one. He talks about this experiment called the 246 problem, which is based on a trick question. And first of all, in any psych experiment, you should always assume the psychologist is trying to bamboozle you. You know how, as a kid, you dream of having superpowers? I used to dream of being in a psych experiment where I figure out what they're testing and I ruin their experiment. (laughs) So the, the study is, a researcher shows people three numbers, two, four, six, and says, these numbers follow a rule. 
you have to guess the rule by trying out different numbers. Now, the trick is the rule is just numbers that go up, but everyone locks onto even numbers. So they'll say, does 468 follow the rule? And the researcher says, yes. 6810, yes. Okay, it's even numbers in a row. But really, to learn the truth, you should also try to disprove your own theory. Like if you said 247, the researcher would say yes. And so now your even numbers theory cannot be true. Hmm. Anyway, the, the takeaway is we, we would all be smarter if we tried to disprove our own theories once in a while. Hmm. Like the theory that a literary character has to be perfect to be likable. <laughs> you know that I've said that I don't care if Ron or anyone else is perfect. To me, a character automatically isn't likable anymore if they are a jerk to women. <laughs> to woman. <laughs> Just to his future wife. <laughs> I like that we're trying to encourage listeners to have civil conversations, and we can't model good behavior on the lowest stakes argument of all time. <laughs> I'm just trying to show everyone that I'm the one with the righteous mind here. <laughs> I think that is what the book was teaching. <laughs> I can't wait for this next lesson now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Lesson four. It's all been leading up to this. <laughs> Disagree better. So I've heard both of these statements from people in my religion. Quote, I don't understand how someone can be a Democrat and a member of the church. Here's the other quote. I can't understand how someone can be a Republican and a member of the church. And these are often because of single-issue members of, of each party. They, they argue over welfare and the death penalty, euthanasia, etc. But here's the thing. The only party Jesus was a member of was a wedding. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think I've just brought all Christians together with a single joke. See how this works, Dave? Uh, An important takeaway for me from this book is when he said, we're divided by politics and religion, but it's not because some people are good and others are evil. Instead, it's because our minds were designed for groupish righteousness. Our gut feelings mm. drive our strategic reasoning, which makes it difficult to connect with people who live in other moral matrices which are built in different available moral foundations, meaning that very, very few people are, are out there actually trying to be evil. Everyone from both sides is coming from the common point of what is best for society. Each side genuinely wants prosperity and safety. They just have wildly different viewpoints on what policies would achieve that. But it's like people on both sides of the aisle act like the other side is collectively twisting the bottom of their goatee saying, let's destroy this country. <laughs> right? Isn't that, right. doesn't that seem to be the argument uh, from both presidential candidates every four years, which is let's get our uh -huh. country back, you know? Right. And then when your person is in power, it's a little bit like, so that's it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think a, a great example of a healthy conversation, I don't listen to Joe Rogan a lot, but it, it does surprise me how good he is at conversation, that he's not just there hmm. to have like the, a political crossfire with someone else for four minutes where both of them yell at each other. And then the guy running the show is like, and now for a commercial break, you know? 
You'll have a full-on, like, three-and-a-half-hour discussion with someone else. You can find a great clip of, of him and Russell Brand both talking about hunting. And they couldn't come from, like, more opposite ends of the spectrum. But it's fascinating to just listen to each of them give their reasons. Like, Russell Brand will, will bring up how killing animals is immoral. But Joe Rogan will counter it with, yeah, but this elk was going to die in a much worse way, getting eaten. Like, most animals don't die of old age, right? They die by being mm. eaten. <laughs> Which is why I'm I'm so glad that humans don't have to deal with that anymore. Um, but then Russell Brand will counter that with, "Yeah, but who are you to decide when the when the animal dies?" But neither of them raise their voices, and both of them, I think, have uh, genuinely good good points to make. Interesting. I've never heard any Joe Rogan. The two things I know about him are that he endorsed Bernie Sanders. And every person on the left seems to hate him. <laughs> so it makes him an enigma for me. Sure. I have no idea what he stands for. <laughs> you either have to choose to decide how you feel about someone by a single tweet or be willing to listen to a four-hour conversation and realize that humans are complex beings <laughs> and that maybe there's more to him than just the MMA and the sweaty forehead. <laughs> I do think that's funny about sports in general is having a conversation with someone about this recently about uh, the culture of high school football, especially in the South. It's huge in communities like everyone, everyone goes to these games, even people who aren't related to any of the children playing football on the field. Uh -huh. And one of the arguments on their side is that like, yeah, it, it brings communities together. And it's like, yeah, that's half true. It brings your community together right <laughs> and it makes you extremely aggressive toward the other community so <laughs> well i mean that's the theory about why presidents go to war right before an election if you have someone else to hate the theory uh. is it's easier for <laughs> voters to fall in line <laughs> And I'm not saying that I, I agree with Joe Rogan on everything. I just think that he is an unfortunately rare example of someone who is willing to have an actual civil conversation about elk jerky. Anyway, uh, I loved uh, the end of this book. Hate says, quote, we circle around sacred values and then have discussions about how we are so right and they are so wrong. We think the other side is blind to reason, truth, science, and common sense. But if you really want to open your mind, open your heart first. If you want to have a friendly interaction with a member of another group, you'll find it far easier to listen to what they're saying and maybe even see a controversial issue in a new light. You may not even agree, but you'll shift to a more constructive yin-yang disagreement. So again, I just think maybe just ask yourself, are you having a conversation because you're open to another angle that you may not have considered and are sharing yours accordingly? Or are you just spitting out unsourced quotes so that you can walk out in slow motion, high-fiving everyone on your team? <laughs> I argue so that I can feel the cocaine high of being better than someone. <laughs> Speaking of that and your recurring dream... <laughs> That you mentioned uh, in your previous point. I'm in the middle of Elton John's autobiography, and he says that even though he's been sober for almost 30 years, he still has a weekly recurring dream that someone walks in on him doing cocaine. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> he says, it's always the same. It's usually my mom who walks in and then I spill it everywhere. And I was just thinking, man, <laughs> that just seems so much more exciting than like my recurring dream of trying to figure out how to put a hot air balloon together for like an hour and a half. You ever have those dreams where you're doing just like a mundane chore and then you wake up? Kind of. Two nights ago, I dreamed that I almost drowned in the shower. (laughs) (laughs) What? I'm just taking a shower, and then all of a sudden I realize the drain has clogged and the shower has filled up over my head. (laughs) And I'm desperately trying to open the door while underwater, like one of those like magician scenes. (laughs) Christian Bale comes in with an axe to the shower glass, but it's too late. (laughs) And there's a hundred dead Daves and showers in a warehouse. I'm giving away a lot of a Christopher Nolan movie. (laughs) All right, random facts. At one point he says, When I was a teenager, I wished for world peace. But now I yearn for a world in which competing ideologies are kept in balance, systems of accountability keep us all from getting away with too much, and fewer people believe that righteous ends justify violent means. Mm. And I imagine the poor kid at the t-shirt shop saying, that's not going to fit. <laughs> also, couldn't he also still wish for world peace? <laughs> Kill each other as much as possible, as long as there's a balance between the parties. <laughs> Reminds me of that Lion King song. <laughs> you ever notice how the circle of life is such a self-serving motto for the lion? <laughs> Yeah, and then someday we die of natural causes after living on top of everything forever. And then, uh, you know, our body becomes grass. But until then, all of you feed me. It's great to be on top. I'm not scared when I sleep. A lion must eat dozens or hundreds of antelopes over the course of its life. And then it's like, oh, no, yeah, enjoy this one meal of grass from my rotting body. It cost me nothing. I remember even as a kid hearing that line and being like, hold up. It's the circle of life. But for most of you, it's a tiny semicircle. Please don't tense up when I bite. Or you won't be tender. And the freaking herbivores buy into it. The antelopes are bowing down at the beginning. They're bowing down to this little guy who will one day eat them. I want to see the Marxist meerkat who's like, hold up. I love that every Disney movie believes two things at once. First, that every child is special and unique and should follow their dreams. And second, that monarchy is great. (laughs) (laughs) It is funny that the subplot of that story is a monarchy versus totalitarianism, right? It's just two (laughs) battling dictatorships. Uh There's not a single monkey who's like, maybe we could just all vote on this. (laughs) This king is bad because he's deformed. (laughs) (laughs) So he mentions this moral psychologist, Scott Murphy, who did this social experiment where he asked strangers if they would sign a form that read, I hereby sell my soul to Scott Murphy for $2. (laughs) 
It also said this farm is not a legal binding contract in any way. And only 23% of people signed it, which gives me zero hope. Isn't that insane that you would refuse or actually believe that this piece of paper did something? (laughs) On the other hand, again, for $2, 37% of people drank apple juice that had a sterilized cockroach dipped in it. Uh, I know that the germs, I'm sure, are gone. But you, I don't know how you hold back that impulse. Right. <laughs> it seems like half of those people are like, well, at least I'll still be master of my own soul. <laughs> the soul thing I understand as being like a backwards Pascal's wager, where it's like, I'm 99.99% sure this does nothing. But what a terrible bet if I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I do understand that part of it, too, because for sure, if the devil had you sign something, uh, he would have a footnote at the bottom that said, this is not a binding contract. But then you sign it and he'd be like, well, you know that I lie, though, right? <laughs> Remember the devil went down to Georgia, how he bet his soul against a fiddle of gold? <laughs> First of all, I bet that fiddle sounds terrible. <laughs> He says in the same way we domesticated cats and dogs, we also domesticated ourselves. So if you compare cats and dogs to their ancestors, similar changes happen to us. We have smaller teeth, smaller bodies, less aggression, more playfulness. Although I don't know how you look at an ancient human skeleton and decide, oh yeah, not very playful. (laughs) (laughs) But he's saying we value cooperation so much that our less cooperative ancestors kind of died out. That is funny. We talk about that a bit on the, our Jurassic Park episode, which is still one of my favorites, where it is it is funny how many assumptions have been made that we just believe in books, where it's like, Triceratops uh, used to show affection by uh, shaking leaves down onto each other. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I don't know where you're getting this. It's bones. <laughs> Speaking of tolerance of other people's beliefs, my girlfriend got mad at me for making fun of astrology. And I'm like, (laughs) it's all about judging people based on when they were born. So why is it wrong for me to judge them for believing something so stupid? (laughs) (laughs) I also learned in an astronomy class, from the time that astrology was essentially founded to now, all of the constellations are actually off by a month. (laughs) But I know that that's not going to convince anyone other than, I know, it's just so Virgo of me to be acting like a Scorpio right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure the scientific evidence will change a lot of minds. <laughs> My girlfriend, she doesn't even believe it. She just thought I was arrogant. And I'm like, oh, I'm probably arrogant because of the month I was born. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from The Righteous Mind. One, Maybe learning to debate is a toxic skill. Two, feelings come first, reason second. Three, if you have a theory, don't just try to prove it, try to disprove it. Four, disagree better. And five, life is fair, but only when you're a lion. (laughs) 